0: Greetings, Ray's community. Brent coming in live with my guest, Andy Johnji, who is the Interim Vice President for University Advancement and Executive Vice President of the Florida State University Foundation, which is one of the advancement leadership titles with the most syllables in all of the land. Welcome, Andy.
1: Thank you very much, Brent. Good to be here with you.
0: Well, we have known each other for uh, quite a while now and have, uh, I think, built a real friendship on this journey of ours entrepreneurially and yours professionally. And that being said, I know uh, for sure we're going to get to know each other a little bit better today because I have never asked you this question, which is, who was the Andy Janji in his junior year of high school? What was that guy into? And... What led to your college decision?
1: Yeah, so interesting question. You know, um, I was a two, uh, into two sports, played two varsity sports, basketball and tennis, but tennis was uh, the one that my parents were pushing me into. Uh, went on to uh, junior year, left uh, Maryland, was in Columbia, Maryland, and moved to Florida for my senior year uh, and ended up playing college tennis from there
0: was it, um, part of the interest in tennis that, that sparked the move to Florida? I mean, that's a tough time to move.
1: it was a real tough time. No, it was a, a father's job change. Uh, you know, and, and with our culture, the dad makes the decision we're moving senior year, you're coming with us, or you can
0: find a place to live here in Maryland. So of course I went with my parents. And when you think about tennis, um, What was your all-time favorite tennis memory? So my all-time favorite tennis
1: memory was playing Patrick McEnroe. Some of you might know his brother, John McEnroe. And I say this candidly, I thought I had that match won and felt like I got a a, a raw deal. I'll leave it at that uh, on a call, but barely lost that match. It was in a nationals tournament. Um, But that's my claim to fame, playing someone who ended up playing in the tour and did very well.
0: And uh, I think you could take him today. Zero doubt in my mind. For
1: <laughs> Probably sounds like, not.
0: <laughs> sounds like you've never thought twice about that experience.
1: No, no, I, I, I live it every day. What should I have done for that one point? That set point that I had.
0: <laughs> we all have those moments where it is. Uh, yeah. You know, the ball could have bounced the other way, but, Wouldn't
1: uh, would be a lot better if I said
0: I beat Patrick McEnroe. No, it would be different. It would be a little bit better to be honest. Yeah. Um, but so, uh, tell me about the, the collegiate, uh, tennis experience. Uh, where was that? What was that like? And, uh, and what else was going on during college?
1: Yeah. So Western Carolina university, um, was where I played tennis. Uh, I actually went there because, three of my friends who I met playing tennis in Florida, that was all offers to different places. But Western was the one place that they offered all three of us a scholarship offer and we wanted to be together. And so we had three freshmen that came into the team. It was great, a great experience. We were close friends. Uh, college was great. Uh, moving from Florida to Western North Carolina in the mountains uh, was amazing. I mean, you know, Florida is beautiful in its own way, but but um, having been in mostly flat lands, uh, going to the
0: mountains was incredible. And how do we pronounce the town that Western Carolina is located in? Cullowee, North Carolina. Cullowee. I can, I can say honestly, until this moment, I have never said the word nor read the word Cullowee. So yeah. tell me about Cullowee. What should we know when we go visit? Uh, Metropolis. Uh, dry town. <laughs> uh maybe two uh, restaurants,
1: Uh, you know, the the institution at that time had about 7,000 students. So there was not much, a couple pizza places and a Hardee's that was the late night dining uh pleasure of students.
0: In Culloway. All right. Well, if anybody had been on the fence, hopefully they're now, they're now sold. What else am I seeing? Population of 6,000 people and, uh, And that there are 14 universities in the North Carolina system. And Western Carolina is the fifth oldest. Right. Known as the Valley of the Lilies. Looks beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I will say um, now, if you go into the Western North Carolina mountains, it's almost all retirement communities, summer vacation homes. And and if I would have known now, or if I would have known then what I know now, I would have invested in a lot of property (laughs) then.
0: Well, uh, sounds like it was a a good experience. Unbelievable to have, uh, three teammates on a, on a team, uh, from the same high school. And, uh, and I'm sure that that helped with the. It was the same high
1: school. They were different. They were, one was from St. Pete, one was from Tampa. We just had played junior tennis together.
0: Each other got it. So, so kind of the, uh, the, 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 the Bay area, uh, uh, move up to Culloway and, At what point, if any, during the college experience, did you get exposure to alumni engagement, fundraising? I mean, was that on your radar at all? And if so, when? The only thing that was on our radar at that
1: point, we had to write thank you letters to our scholarship. You know, people gave money to athletics and it was done by uh, most of the athletes. Some of us took it more seriously than others, but really it wasn't a thing. For the longest time. Uh, Exposure really for for alumni relations, advancement, fundraising really came later on
0: in my life. So tell me about kind of concluding uh, your four years there um, and, you know, what kind of career path aspirations did you have upon entering college, if any, recognizing that you know, when you're trying to play college tennis, that can be pretty, pretty all-consuming. Uh, you know, physically and and mentally. But, um, but, but, where did things start to trend as it related to the the after college journey? So,
1: um, going into college, uh, we have a family of doctors and engineers, and my parents really would have wished I was going to be a doctor. So, started out as a biology major, ended up getting my degree in biology, and did apply to some med schools and. And was accepted to one or two, but I, I realized pretty early on in the, in the biology experience that I was studying three or four times as hard as other students who wanted to go to med school. And the competitive competitiveness factor really played a role. I said, I can't compete with these kids. I mean, you, you know that when you're an athlete who you can compete with. And I really didn't have a passion for that, Brent. So I took some, uh, some business courses, came very easy for me. Uh, and decided to do my master's in business
0: well i can say that we have two former pre-med students on today's podcast and so i can empathize with everything you just said andy um did you immediately go and pursue the business uh, masters after college or did you uh did you have any time in between I did. I went immediately. I did. I did some internships and so on.
1: But I did. It was pretty much immediately because one of the things that we want, I wanted to do, was you know, as I I knew, going back to school was difficult. Um, you get busy with the world. I, I had these conversations with uh, some parents. The markets weren't great either at that point. You get out with a biology degree, you're not sure what you're going to do with it, right? This is a this is a challenge for folks who do biology or chemistry, what are you going to do with it if you don't go on to grad school? So the the goal was always to go to grad school. I just had to figure out which grad graduate programs I wanted to go to. So I had to take a couple of core courses for the business school and then went on to do my
0: master's right away. Got it. Um, And that was right at Western as well? Right at
1: Western. Yep.
0: And so that was presumably a a two-year program along those lines. Yep. And um, one of the great things about your right business programs is, is not the, just the curriculum, but you get exposure to different career paths than you certainly would have thought about, you know, in a biology context. And so uh, it sounds like a business piece, uh, you know, interests you undergrad wise and um, but business can mean a lot of things. What where did that lead you after your master's program?
1: So it led me, um, initially it was, led me to look at some investment banking, research positions in investment banking, had an opportunity to move to New York City, uh, decided not to do that. Um, some of my internships I did was an economic impact study uh, for the North Carolina Arboretum, which actually ended up getting built. Uh, so it was always on the, on the financial side, uh, economic impact research and those type of things, Went home to Florida and Florida Atlantic was looking for someone who was really going to write a uh, compliance program for their institutional review board and their IACOC, which is their human subjects review uh, and their animal care and use committee. And, and, and along that line, it was also to do their conflict of commitment and conflict of interest policies. And really I took that opportunity because I, was, I had moved back to Florida Love uh, liked living in Florida, and really learned a lot about university life. Didn't think I was going to do it forever, but you know those writing skills and those economic impact skills played
0: a good role in researching those type of projects. And was it in that role where you got some exposure to fundraising, or or not yet? Uh, Not much, but
1: I you know I I dealt with the uh, with the foundation there at Florida Atlantic University, but not until my next move, which was at the University of Colorado. That I started getting experience on the fundraising side.
0: And uh, that's a huge move. I mean, first of all, after a six-year run uh, in Cullowhee, you know, going back to Florida, I'm sure, right, you're a different guy at that age than, you know, leaving, uh, and you were only in Florida for a year before, you know, going to college. Um, But Colorado is a whole new world. So what was the catalyst for that move? Uh, It was a recruitment. So when I did this uh, program, you know, you join, uh,
1: you go to uh, different uh, conferences, meetings, University of Colorado said, we need a director of research. You've done a lot of things that we'd like, uh, and you're up and coming. Uh, uh, I met the provost who was the provost at the University of Colorado, Denver. And she basically said, we have a position and we're building our research platform. And we'd love for you to look at some of the opportunities we have there, which was then the recruitment. Yeah. And so what, what is a director of research? So it's, it's contracts and grants. So it's someone who helps on the budgetary side. You don't write uh, proposals, the faculty write the proposals, but you have to put the budgets together. You have to make sure compliance is met for the research enterprise. So it's really running the research enterprise, not writing the proposals, but the financials and the compliance pieces. And again, the compliance
0: led me into the research. Got it. And uh, when you're in a role like that, Andy, who, who are you working most closely with? Who are your counterparts at the university that you really cross paths with? So the uh, folks in the uh, provost's office. Uh, folks. Also, who's, who's your boss when you're the director of research?
1: So it was a, a, a vice president for research, but I worked very closely with the provost. Uh, and again, the provost was the person who I originally met. Uh, and so my counterparts were directors of other divisions. You're kind of at a sta- standalone, but you are working with faculty senior faculty, deans, uh, really working with leadership to make sure that their proposals are getting funded and opportunities are getting funded. Things are getting submitted on time. So you're really working with a variety of people, anyone who's
0: connected to the research enterprise. And when along that journey, did you start thinking about the fundraising? So two years later, uh,
1: the provost was promoted to uh, chancellor or or interim Mm -hmm. chancellor. And she asked, uh, she said, I need someone to help me. I've seen what you can do. I'd like you to take the role on as special assistant to the chancellor. And some of the things we're going to do is start building uh, an advancement program. Uh, And I'd like you to come over and do that. Your skill set matches those type of opportunities.
0: Who was that? Who was that provost and chancellor?
1: Georgia Lesh-Laurie. So she was a biologist. Funny enough, you ask, Brent.
0: And I mean, that's a, pretty big leap to sort of move right into a role like that without let's say coming up the ranks through the, the business of advancement yeah. I mean I, I could see they're bearing some real benefits to uh, fresh perspective but but also um, there's a lot to learn
1: you're absolutely right and and I got to say my mentors have been really good to me and given me opportunity to to
0: produce well we are recording this in the end of January, and that is mentorship month. So this is the time. Who, who are some of those mentors, Andy? So it's a lot of them are my
1: chancellors. So Georgia Lash-Lori, uh, Dr. Jim Shore, who uh, was uh, the chancellor of the Health Sciences Center at the time. Uh, Dr. M. Roy Wilson, who is now president of Wayne State. He's a world-renowned surgeon, a glaucoma surgeon. Are, are three to name a few. I've worked for some really tremendous leaders, but they really helped me mature as a young man into learning about how you lead an organization. And took I tried to take a little bit of all of their skill sets and, and integrate those into the things that
0: I wanted to become. And when you think about that kind of indoctrination into the world of advancement, special assistant role, sounds like you were sort of building from, from, maybe not scratch, but almost scratch at that time. Um, What are some of the memories that stand out where you started to feel like, Hey, I didn't know much about this space, but I kind of love it.
1: You know, some of the best ones were uh, uh, looking at um, what the opportunities exist. How do you actually, you know, in a special assistant to the, to the chancellor role, at least the role that I had and what they defined was dealing with external and internal constituents. It's part of relationship building. Uh, and what relationship building leads to is a, is a role in advancement or fundraising or friend raising, the whole gamut. You're the front door to the chancellor. So you know, you're know you out uh, representing the chancellor or the institution at community events. You're out basically, basically helping whoever the chancellor or the leader is to make sure that you're putting the best foot forward for the institution. This business is a relationship business. And all of a sudden you start opening your eyes and saying, this is what leads to gifts. And that's where some of the gift conversations started, which enabled me then to really manage some of the, the, the relationships and work with our other advanced professionals.
0: Are there any early gifts you were a part of where you felt like you were kind of there to see the difference between, you know, cold start, relationship formed, relationship nurtured, and that being the difference between philanthropy and, and none?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there was a lot. Um, in the very beginning, we, we were trying to build a new building for our, our College of Architecture and Planning. And we really ended up getting a gift that would renovate a building that they would be in because uh, the, basically the delta was quite a bit higher than we had in, in, in our project. And we needed to get this done pretty quickly. And it was between really having the College of Architecture stay on the Denver campus or move up to the Boulder campus. So we needed the facility and we were able to cultivate a gift that really let us renovate. And because we were in downtown Denver, that's where the professional architects wanted us to be. But there was a lot of politics about where the architecture school was. It was a shared architecture school. But that gift led to the fruition of that campus having the architecture school.
0: That's amazing. Must feel good when you're traveling through Denver.
1: It it does. It really does.
0: You spent almost, my understanding is 19 years in that system. And I just have to ask, given that you were young, you know, early in your career, 19 years is rare in any organization. And I think especially in the midst of the great reset or the great resignation or whatever it is we're in the midst of, I just have to ask you, what was it that allowed you to spend almost two decades of your career um, really on behalf of one mission? Um, and, and how might that inform you know, how we all think about, I mean, you know, having, right, if people stay for three years right now, that feels like a really long time, uh, you know, much less 19. So, so what, what was it that, that, uh, that really made that work for you? I'll have to say, you know, Brent, um,
1: mentorship, being able to uh, raise my hand and given opportunities to grow. I think one of the things that I mentor folks that work here or, or other folks around the country that I talk to, I say, look, if you wanna make an impact and, and uh, truly make an impact, you can't bounce around every two or three years. Uh, because our I go back to what I said earlier, this is a relationship business. If you're jumping around every two or three years, it's hard to have the uh, deep-rooted relationships. Us as leaders, what we have to do is make sure that we impart our knowledge and say, give people opportunities to grow. Because a lot of times people leave not because Truly, money is kind of a motivator, but the other motivator is they wanna grow. They wanna have opportunities to do new things. And if you look at my background in those 19 years, I was always given things that were above and beyond. Hey, this isn't working. Would you like to try to take care of it? And there wasn't a time where I said, no, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I was able to, to uh, help raise some, some transformational gifts. I was able to lead the consolidation of two campuses. I was able to grow in, in a place where it gave me a lot of experiences, broad-based experiences that could help shape me as a leader.
0: Yet after two decades, uh, ultimately there was an opportunity to, to go back to Florida and you're now, I think in your 11th or 12th year at, at Florida state in, in, you know, there's been structural changes and whatnot, but, um, but I believe 11 or 12 years. And, and and so, you know, tell me about that decision, how that came about. And, you know, as you reflect on, I mean, you know, you joined, I don't know, in the depths of the kind of post housing bubble sort of, you know, challenges that I'm sure were not um, lost on anybody in, in, in Florida at that time. And, uh, you know, have gone through the, I think, growth years, of, you know, following that up to the pandemic and having to navigate that in addition to, you know, changing structures within the university. So, I mean, it's been quite a, uh, quite a journey and I'm just curious to know what, what led to the opportunity and then what stands out uh, during the last decade. Yeah. So I originally
1: wasn't looking. I mean, once you're at that near two decade period, you can pretty much stay at the institution and continue to do what you're doing, continue. You've got a lot of relationships built, you uh, what really led to the opportunities, Florida State came a couple of times knocking at my door, saying, look, this is a really good opportunity. You can, you can um, go back to Florida. You can lead a billion-dollar campaign. The, the piece that I didn't have in Colorado was the, the athletic fundraising because that was on our Boulder campus. I had the medical school background uh, in the Health Sciences Center and building a new campus. I had uh, a downtown uh, urban campus uh, that was a general campus. Um, and athletics adds a different dynamics, but more so, um, we, at some point wanted to get back to Florida. We had a 10 year old. There are certain times I did not want my son to go through what I had to go through moving my senior year. If we were ever going to look at the move, that was one 2 um, I'm an only child. Uh, family is very important to me. My dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Um, and while it's easy, and, and I don't mean to, to discount that Florida State was not a great opportunity, but there is timings in your life that you reset. And that was a reset in my life, knowing that my mom was going to need me, being an only child. They were in Atlanta. This, it's about a four-hour drive from Tallahassee to Atlanta. Uh, the opportunity seemed right. Uh, I thought I could do some good things here. I'm, I'm not about legacy building. I'm about leaving places better than when I got there. And I think there was an opportunity, uh, which led me to really have a conversation. And we did it as a family. So, and and everyone agreed that that my family at that point needed me more than the University of Colorado needed me. And Florida State was a, a vehicle that was a great vehicle to get us there.
0: I think that's a really important reminder. You know, we talk a lot about the professional path and the professional growth and opportunities, but there's always the personal backdrop. And I think certainly in the last, you know, year or two, uh, there's been a lot more introspection and reflection around what do I want in life and sort of what is the intersection of work and and, and life and family. And it sounds like that was a huge driver um, for you. And I'm glad that you've been able to, you know, have that um that that opportunity to be near your family and near your father during that time. And also, um, you know, to really have some incredible opportunities leading, leading philanthropy. And I've just got to, I've got to ask you on that note, I know you had an opportunity and one of your highlights has been working on uh, the naming gift for the college of entrepreneurship with, I believe Jim Moran and and, and family um, and, I read a little bit about Jim Moran, but I think like this is just one of those moments when, you know, really getting the human story behind the donors and then how that can all translate into a hundred million dollar, you know, generational, multi-generational transformation. I just got to hear more about how that came to be.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a
0: well before I got here that
1: the relationship started with our business school to really, uh, what called call Jan, uh, the Jim Moran Institute. Um, and, and I just
0: just have to like I read um, I read a little bit about him. I'll just read the sentence for the audience. Uh, From humble beginnings in Chicago, Jim Moran's entrepreneurial spirit came alive when he began selling soda pop at sandlot baseball games at the age of seven. As he neared adulthood in 1939, he saved 360 dollars to buy a Sinclair gas station, turning it into the highest volume. And most profitable Sinclair station in Chicago, and so on and 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 so forth. But just uh, sounds like an amazing story.
1: Yeah, his entrepreneurial spirit is is an amazing. He has a book that that was authored about his life. Um, and and I will say, when you deal with families like that, um, the value structure is very important. And and his his value was about giving back to the community. His value was coming from. Uh, from limited means um, and um, the gift really materialized because he had passed away when that gift was made. His his wife and their foundation said, this is the best way to honor his legacy is to build the first public entrepreneurial school in the country uh, and, and really value what he found uh, so meaningful in his life. I, I'll say, Brent, this was the second largest gift that I've ever been part of. My largest gift was the $125 million gift at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, with which we did with Phil Anschutz for naming our, our Health Sciences Center and starting and catalyzing the program to build a whole new campus. And now if anyone looks up University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, it is a named campus from him. Um, and his his vision and legacy and his passion was making that colorado the healthiest state in the country so that's what these major transformational leadership gifts are all about
0: and can i ask as it relates to giving at that level and maybe it's the same at every level but why not 100 million instead of 125 why not 150 instead of 125 like how do you go from vision to initial ask to really inking what is ultimately a just a big transaction? I mean, it's a deal at the end of the day at that level, and you might not like to think about it or talk about it that way, but you're talking about any other $100 million business deal out there has a lot of legal and negotiation and tax and all. I mean... What's just the process to go from vision down to actually inking documentation at that level? And how different is it from a $100,000 major gift, for example?
1: Well, so I'll say a couple of things about it. Um, and it's a really important question that you ask. It is a deal. It, this is, it, this is a, it's a major transaction because the person is committing their resources and their legacy to whatever institution they're giving at. You would have some people who at that time, and I'll be very forthright, questioned is 125 million enough? Um, because there was data that showed there were medical schools that were in the same ranking category as University of Colorado's medical school that were getting named for 250 million. Uh, so when we did the de- detail, but that's what his comfort level was. And the reality of that that agreement and process of closing that deal was we couldn't build the new campus on the Fitzsimmons Army base, which was a new campus that we had committed to the state, the Department of Defense, the Army, and University of Colorado that we were gonna build this campus. We needed to catalyze that campus and building of that campus. And so this was a negotiation. Um, From a donor's perspective, that $100,000 gift, if that's all they can afford, is just as meaningful as the $125 million gift that if that's all that the other donor can afford. They are leaving what they believe is their hard work and legacy in your hands. And you have to treat each of them, at least in the same way, just understand that the dollars are
0: different. You don't need to go into the specific um, details if it's not appropriate, but I am curious when you just uh, you almost just highlighted like the idea of, of comps, right? People talk about comps in real estate all the time, right? How much did the house down the street sell for? Are there a set of comps out there around what a medical school goes for when you're talking to your peers in the advancement sector? I mean, is that just a kind of call up friends and sort of whisper because <laughs> some of that stuff is probably confidential or you know, not publicly disclosed at time? Or, or is there a set of material that would say, hey, a business school is going for this and at this ranking level, and here's what a, you know, bench on the green goes for and, and everything. Like, how do we decide price points linked to naming and some of those sorts of things? Yeah, another great question. So, when you
1: talk about major namings of colleges, um, the naming gifts are all out there. And what I would usually do uh, or what I do as part of the process is say, hey, Dean X, Y, and Z, what are some of your peers named at? Your named peers, what did they get? What year? How was that transaction? Tell me a little bit more, get a little more. And the deans provide that information. They know. They're out there. Hey, University of X got this. University of Y got this. This is how the deal was constructed. This is what what was part of the, the gift agreement. They have a that network is very tight, right? Because otherwise you've got different colleges with different missions. We'd be guessing who the peers were uh, a lot of times at the advancement level. You know, I could say, hey, Georgia's a peer to Carolina for this college, and they might not be peers at all. They might be very different uh, skill, uh, uh, educational viewpoints. So the deans really help that. Um, when you go to smaller gifts on naming, pretty much it's based on campus. And you, you, what we do here is we have the colleges on an annual base say, what are the named gifts or namespaces that, that you have opportunities to name? Let's get those approved now. And they go through a basis of what's the square footage? What's the visibility? Uh, what's the impact that you need for the gift? Do you have to build things or build out space? And that's how you come up with these numbers. It's, it's formulaic in some ways, Uh, But for the larger gifts, it's all about knowing what other institutions that are peers for those colleges uh, have been named at. And you come up with a number that, that people will feel comfortable with.
0: And then let's say, whether you've experienced this or you have peers maybe that have shared this, let's say that we decide, hey, XYZ naming opportunity, we think is roughly around a $50 million value based on what we've heard from peers, et cetera, et cetera. And then you meet with a donor and the donor says, Hey, what are some of the big ideas that are out there right now? And you say, well, it's funny. You should ask that Brent. We've actually been starting to think about a naming opportunity for, you know, X, Y, Z school unit, et cetera. Do I then say, well, what are you thinking about for that Andy? Or, or, or do you lead with, and, and this is what that would look like. I mean, Um, because for example, let's say it's a $50 million naming opportunity. I say, geez, I couldn't do 50, but could you make it work for 30 Andy? I mean, is that like how these negotiations might go or like, what's the real dialogue there and and how much wiggle room might there be? So the first thing is um, if someone's interested in business and And I know that just for everybody listening, it would never be as transactional as I just said, but in the spirit of time, I'm trying to learn here. Okay. Yeah,
1: No, no. And I, I, and that's a good way, but because if someone's interested in music and you have a business school naming opportunity, those, those ends are going to be hard to meet. Right. But what, if they're interested because you, you have to get to know a donor to have that conversation. And if they're interested and you've got a naming opportunity that fits into their interest or passion, that's when you have the initial discussion and you say, hey, this is what we're looking at. And they may say, okay, well, look, can 50 be 35? And then you say, okay, well, let's talk about what the 35 is going to go to. Let's let's see what the impact's going to be. Let's look at the, the uh, structure of the gift and let's take a look at how we get to the 50, right? If if 50 is really the goal because that is really what you need, what time horizon, right? How much can can you offer up front? And that's where the conversations really get interesting because you can get a gift that is a much larger gift, but over a much longer time horizon that's going to take much more time to come to fruition to deliver the things you want or a smaller gift with a lot more cash up front that you can use that cash right away. So I think it's a balancing act. 35 million cash is different than 50 million over 20 years. I don't, you know, from my perspective, a
0: lot of people say 35 million up front is the way to go. Yeah, got it. So you're really talking about the structuring aspects of of, uh, of philanthropy. What are, I mean, what are some of the more, I don't know, have you seen examples where, creative structuring helped get somebody to yes or, or helped get the impact that, that was being sought uh, in a way that might not have happened with just a, you know, take it or leave it. This is the, the cash amount needed. Yeah.
1: So a blended gift is a perfect example.
0: Start with a certain amount that's going to be upfront
1: cash over five years, let's just say. And, uh, and you can get, say you need to build a building, right? and you need to get at least three quarters of the money up front. And then the remaining quarter is going to be for program, which you can push off into an estate uh, commitment that uh, that is a binding estate commitment. Um, that's a good way to look at it. A lot of times you need cash if the implementation is going to be capital, right? You need the cash. The bigger number, if it's 20 years down the road, you can't build a building with that, right? So that's where you start looking at what are the nuances of what you want to do with the gift and with the naming dollars?
0: Where do people go to learn gift structuring, Andy? I mean, like, is that just sort of through osmosis or or once you know specific conversations are in flight that you or others might then help coach up a, a gift officer? I mean, if I'm a new gift officer, what you, you know, a lot of what you've shared is quite complex. Is there specialized training for that or programming or case or? Other conferences that people go to for this sort of expertise?
1: There is. Once they get the basics down and they're moving into the more complex deal, you want to send them to um, plan giving, which are sp- uh, specific cl- uh, plan giving vehicle.
0: Which I think is our friend Jake Lemons kind of. Yes. Uh,
1: that plan. is, that is. And he was a banker. Right. Uh, so a lot of bankers have that. Uh, a lot of lawyers have that experience too. So they come out on the, on the plan giving side. Uh, you have to be able to t- learn about the structure of a a blended gift. How would you do a blended gift? What are you trying to accomplish? Some of it is peer-to-peer training, but a lot of it is offered at different national levels. Case has some things you just really need to give. Again, it comes to mentorship and opportunity for people to get professional training.
0: Okay. And you just mentioned bankers and lawyers. One other question that I had for you is um, when you think about philanthropic advisory, okay. Like, A lot of the high net uh, worth families that you'd be working with, that you work with, that your peers work with, have advisors for everything. They have advisors on every legal deal, every LLC that they form. They've got uh, private wealth advisors. They've got people focused on insurance. They've got trust advisors. There's advisors around the board. Who is their philanthropic advisor? Like when they're thinking about a $50 million dollar deal of any other stripe there's advisors everywhere right does the same thing happen with philanthropy or is that more of a personal sort of go it alone decision
1: yeah great again it's an interesting question a lot of times we see their one of their main advisors in philanthropic giving is their tax accountant and they have a very complex tax accounting so if they have that type of wealth they have a very complex accounting uh you know uh tax person. And that's one of the people they really count on to say, what kind of tax breaks will I get if I do this type of structure? So that's the first part of the conversation. Then the second part of the conversation they bring in is their legal counsel to really talk about, okay, let's make sure you're getting the legacy you want and making sure the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed and what you're trying to do as impact uh, from a donor perspective is what the gift agreement says. So I think there's a multi-tier. One, hey, I really love this institution. So that's the first conversation with the development officer. Let me start thinking about this transformational gift. Two, let me get with my tax folks. Let me get my with my team and tax folks. And we, we have experts that work with the tax folks. You know, They have to file their own personal taxes. That's up to them to do. And they have to understand what the nuances is. The university doesn't take liability for that. And then the third is, once they get there and get the comfort level, Let's really work on the gift agreement, and that's where they bring in their legal team and their families. I think the fourth is their families are part of this at some point to say, "Hey, if we're making this type of commitment, is this what the family wants?"
0: Love it. Have you ever seen things fall apart? Not to bring back bad memories, but but are there gifts that you've either directly been a part of or that you've 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 had a window into that that were just? Um, I mean, you know it's a deal, right? And deals die sometimes at the end, you know, at the last hour, have you seen that happen?
1: Yeah, we did. Unfortunately, we had a college that was named. Um, It was named after a business. Uh, The business started faltering and they couldn't meet their end. It was, so it was not needed. It wasn't all money up front. It was a long-term deal for a naming. Uh, And quite honestly, we had to go back to the donors and say, look, you're not fulfilling your end we're going to have to write off this much, but we're going to also have to take down the name of your name. It's never an easy conversation, but they really get it. Uh, One of the things that, that that all of us should pride ourselves in as advancement is we're not here to sue people to try to get philanthropic giving that that would be a really bad precedent to set but we also want people to be good on their promises. It's, it's a commitment and it's, it's really, you know, our, our gift agreements at Florida State and at, at uh, University of Colorado were, were not um, uh, gift agreements that were contracts. They were gift agreements because they wanted to do this. And that's the way you get more people to feel better and, and steward people. But there are times where people's finances just cannot meet what they've committed to or their family has different priorities.
0: Thank you for sharing, Andy. Um, in the time that we have left, tell me about Florida State today. You know, what are you excited about today? What are the opportunities? Are you growing? Um, just tell me about, you know, kind of the, the current, current state of affairs.
1: So Florida State's going through a lot of change. We have a new president, uh, uh, Richard McCullough, came from Harvard. He was the vice provost for research. He's so the head of research at Harvard. Uh, we have just named a new provost. Uh, uh, which was our former dean of social work. Uh, We are in the midst of a recruitment for a vice president for research. Uh, Multiple deans have turned over. So it's it's transforming and changing. The excitement is there's there's a next step. There's a next step for growth. There's an opportunity for, for some new things. We are going through a process of looking at the advancement structure. The president has charged me to uh, look at different g- groups to come in and look at the advancement structure. How do we structure? What are our peers doing? What are some of our aspirational peers doing? How should we structure it? And how, much, how much resources should we bet, put behind this uh, for campaign readiness? It's really a campaign readiness exercise. And then what's the next campaign going to look like? So I think there's a lot of excitement in Florida State, a lot of change is happening, uh, but change is opportunity.
0: And when you think about, you know, the last couple of years, obviously lots of disruption, you know, around the pandemic and whatnot, um, lessons learned, observations, I mean, what do you think kind of goes back to normal? What, what maybe never does? So I'll tell you what,
1: some of uh, the things that we're doing and some of the things that we've done that have been successful are working with uh, your team and, and, you know, some of the things that we've done with stewardship is, that is part of your team, the thank you videos, uh, looking at uh, digital, digital, uh, digital uh, gift conversations. How are you trying to cultivate students uh, and cultivate uh, folks who are not on campus right now? Quite honestly, that's been one of the big things that we're looking at. How do you do it through, through use of technology? So what's gonna stay? I think we're gonna be able to, on a donor gift cycle, do a lot more assessments through technology, through Zoom and things. So our first meeting is much further along than the initial conversation. How do we get to more prospects? It's some of the things that you've talked about, digital gift officers, right? How do we get to more people? That's one of the challenges we all face because we're all resource constrained in some way. Every institution would like to have more resources. So I think the use of technology, to shorten gift cycles is going to be one big thing. And to try to get to more prospects. Those are some things that are here to stay. And
0: we as institutions need to continue to invest in those things. I think that's super well said. And I um, I feel strongly that, that the future of qualification is going to be radically different. It's going to be digital first, both in being able to better integrate digital signals to know where there's just a common affinity, right, that we're going to get way beyond RFM scores and live buns and start moving toward really understanding holistic engagement across multiple channels so that before I even send the email to ask you for that discovery visit, I know you're at least positively inclined. Doesn't mean you're going to take a visit, doesn't mean you're going to give the major gift, but it means that you care. And I do think that we have spent way too much time over the last couple of decades in the fundraising world reaching out to people that we think have capacity, but have no affinity or no historical engagement. And that is not a good experience as a development officer. It's not relevant for most of those prospects. And that time and attention has come at the expense of people hidden in plain sight that are passionate, even if they're not yet philanthropic. And and that's really a shift that I see. And now that we're all a Zoom link away, hopefully by then starting with the right prospects up front. And having a much more frictionless opportunity to say hello, complementing that with student engagement and videos and personalization in other ways, we can be way more efficient so that by the time we do get on a plane to really go structure a deal, we are much further along in the process. That's what I hope.
1: That's exactly right. You've captured exactly what we need to do as an advancement world
0: have you seen um i mean what i would posit is like every every donor right every person has learned to do business remotely so we talk a lot about oh well its fundraising different i mean everybody has done real estate deals remotely people have done investment deals remotely they've they've just Why would philanthropy be any different? And I do not see a lot of those things, even buying cars remotely. I mean, a lot of that stuff, nobody's going to be like, well, now that the pandemic's over and our masks are off, let's go back to, you know, closing mortgages, sitting next to the person, signing a hundred documents instead of using DocuSign. Like why would we ever go back to that? Um, and, and I don't think philanthropy will be, will be much different if at all.
1: Totally agree with you. I totally agree with you.
0: Um, what are some of the like? I know President McCullough, for example. I mean, he was at Harvard. I, I think we were there at the same time, and he stood up the uh, the data science initiative there. And so, you know, those are obviously um, hot, you know, topics and themes across the sector. I mean, has that level of vision been been laid out or not quite yet?
1: Not quite yet. We're going to go through a strategic planning process as part of this vision, but there are some things that are coming to the forefront. One. Um, uh, data science, big data, is is something that Florida State's good at, and and they're trying to partner and and figure out how we move forward. Uh, Looking at uh, academic health as a bigger, bigger, broader band. Other institutions have done this, but how do we consolidate some of the things that we do in academic health to take our institution to the next level? And really, on the uh, corporate side, how can our engineering faculty work more with corporations and get, get more uh, introduced with making a difference in community impact. So really what we're looking at is there are gonna be some things that kind of rise to the top. We're always looking at student-centered things. Uh, with, you know, uh, how do we make sure that the underserved populations are being served? We're a public institution, right? How do we get the best and the brightest? So students are always gonna be a focus for Florida State, but there are gonna be some other things that are programmatic and entrepreneurship because of the, the gift we want to be a leader in that.
0: Love it. Well, Andy, I'll let you uh, do a plug here. I'm on your jobs page right now. I got assistant director for digital and social giving, development officer, business, music, director of development engineering. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities that looks like right now. And so uh, for any of us in the Northeast, I mean, it's like nine degrees today. So this is your, this is your time, Andy. So if you look behind me, you can barely
1: see out. The sun is shining. It's 65 degrees. The only
0: only vitamin D I've gotten this week is through your windows, through my monitor. uh, With the 65
1: degrees outside, we think this is cold. So we think winter is is hitting us very
0: hard with that. Well, I got to say, Andy, we are, as you know, this is uh, in in two days, I'm coming to Florida for the AGB conference, which is going to be our first in-person conference since the pandemic. I'm so excited for it. And it's going to be 49 degrees on Saturday in Orlando. So this is not what I bargained for. But 49 is
1: still about 50 degrees higher than what you've had the last couple of days in your neck of the woods.
0: I don't like bringing winter coats to Florida. As you were, tell us about the job opportunities. You know,
1: um, what I'd like to say is there's a great culture here. We are looking to build. The president has made it one of his priorities that we need to uh, look at advancement and resource advancement appropriately. We're going to grow. We're going we're to gear up for our next campaign. You can be part of something really exciting. Florida State's a great place to be. And uh, if you're interested, please get in touch with us because we'd love to have you come uh, take a visit.
0: Yeah. And, and just in the spirit of staying in touch, Andy, if people want to reach out, I know you're on LinkedIn. Are there other ways to, to touch base?
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Reach out to me on my email uh, at at, uh, the foundation, which is uh, ajanji at at foundation.fsu.edu, and or go to our website and look at our jobs page that, that you're on, Brent, to take a look at what opportunities exist. We do have quite a few opportunities. We are in a growth mode. We are looking to continue to expand the services we offer the institution, and there's a commitment to resource advancement. That's what you want out of a university. So that is what what we get to offer
0: you. Love it. Well, Andy's got over a decade, decades worth of perspective there at Florida state and um, is a great leader has become a great friend in the space. And I would just encourage you all to get in touch with Andy um, even if it's informal at this point um, you know, just uh, as you've heard today, there's a lot of uh, perspective and, and wisdom to be shared. And so, Andy, with that, I'll see you on Sunday. How's that sound? See you Sunday, Brent. Thank you for having me. I never thought we'd say that again, but I will see you on Sunday. Safe travels. I hear you're getting a storm coming up too. Exactly. I'm dodging eight inches of snow, but I'm going to get down there one way or another. (laughs) Thanks, Andy. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Brent. Take care. Take care.